Chapter Twelve of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Twelve. Daily, as I continued my attendance at the seminary of Mademoiselle Reuter, did I find fresh occasions to compare the ideal with the real. What had I known of female character previously to my arrival at Brussels? Precious little. And what was my notion of it? Something vague, slight, gauzy, glittering. Now, when I came into contact with it, I found it to be a palpable substance enough very hard, too, sometimes, and often heavy. There was metal in it, both lead and iron. Let the idealists, the dreamers about earthly angels and human flowers, just look here while I open my portfolio and show them a sketch or two pencilled after nature. I took these sketches in the second-class schoolroom of Mademoiselle Reuter's establishment, where about a hundred specimens of the genus Jeune Fille, collected together, offered a fertile variety of subject. A miscellaneous assortment they were, differing both in caste and country. As I sat on my estrade, and glanced over the long range of desks, I had under my eye French, English, Belgians, Austrians, and Prussians. The majority belonged to the class bourgeois, but there were many countesses, they were the daughters of two generals and of several colonels, captains and government employés. These ladies sat side by side with young females destined to be demoiselles de magasin, and with some flamandes, genuine aborigines of the country. In dress all were nearly similar, and in manners there was small difference. Exceptions there were to the general rule, but the majority gave the tone to the establishment, and that tone was rough, boisterous, marked by a point-blank disregard of all forbearance towards each other or their teachers, an eager pursuit by each individual of her own interest and convenience, and a coarse indifference to the interest and convenience of everyone else. Most of them could lie with audacity when it appeared advantageous to do so. All understood the art of speaking fair when a point was to be gained, and could with consummate skill and at a moment's notice turn the cold shoulder the instant civility ceased to be profitable. Very little open quarrelling ever took place amongst them, but backbiting and tail-bearing were universal. Close friendships were forbidden by the rules of the school, and no one girl seemed to cultivate more regard for another than was just necessary to secure a companion, when solitude would have been irksome. They were each and all supposed to have been reared in utter unconsciousness of vice. The precautions used to keep them ignorant, if not innocent, were innumerable. How was it, then, that scarcely one of those girls, having attained the age of fourteen, could look a man in the face with modesty and propriety? An air of bold, impudent flirtation, or a loose, silly leer, was sure to answer the most ordinary glance from a masculine eye. I know nothing of the arcana of the Roman Catholic religion, 
and I am not a bigot in matters of theology, but I suspect the root of this precocious impurity, so obvious, so general in popish countries, is to be found in the discipline, if not the doctrines, of the Church of Rome. I record what I have seen. These girls belonged to what are called the respectable ranks of society. They had all been carefully brought up. Yet was the mass of them mentally depraved. So much for the general view. Now for one or two selected specimens. The first picture is a full length of Aurelia Kozlov, a German Fräulein, or rather a half-breed between German and Russian. She is eighteen years of age, and has been sent to Brussels to finish her education. She is of middle size, stiffly made, body long, legs short, bust much developed, but not compactly moulded, waist disproportionately compressed by an inhumanly braced corset, dress carefully arranged, large feet tortured into small bottines, head small, hair smoothed, braided, oiled, and gummed to perfection, very low forehead, very diminutive and vindictive grey eyes, somewhat tartar features, rather flat nose, rather high cheekbones, yet the ensemble not positively ugly, tolerably good complexion, so much for person, as to mind deplorably ignorant and ill-informed, incapable of writing or speaking correctly, even German, her native tongue, a dunce in French, and her attempts at learning English a mere farce. Yet she has been at school twelve years. But as she invariably gets her exercises of every description done by a fellow pupil, and reads her lessons off a book concealed in her lap, it is not wonderful that her progress has been so snail-like. I do not know what Aurelia's daily habits of life are, because I have not the opportunity of observing her at all times, but from what I see of the state of her desk, books, and papers, I should say she is slovenly and even dirty. Her outward dress, as I have said, is well attended to, but in passing behind her bench I have remarked that her neck is grey for want of washing, and her hair, so glossy with gum and crease, is not such as one feels tempted to pass the hand over, much less to run the fingers through. Aurelia's conduct in class, at least when I am present, is something extraordinary, considered as an index of girlish innocence. The moment I enter the room she nudges her next neighbour and indulges in a half-suppressed laugh. As I take my seat on the estrade, she fixes her eye on me. She seems resolved to attract, and if possible, monopolize my notice. To this end she launches at me all sorts of looks, languishing, provoking, leering, laughing. As I am found quite proof against this sort of artillery, for we scorn what, unasked, is lavishly offered, she has recourse to the expedient of making noises, Sometimes she sighs, sometimes groans, sometimes utters inarticulate sounds for which language has no name. If in walking up the schoolroom I pass near her, she puts out her foot that it may touch mine. If I do not happen to observe the manoeuvre, and my boot comes into contact with her brodequin, she affects to fall into convulsions of suppressed laughter. 
if I notice the snare and avoid it, she expresses her mortification in sullen muttering, where I hear myself abused in bad French, pronounced with an intolerable low German accent. Not far from Mademoiselle Kozlov sits another young lady by name Adèle Dronsard. This is a Belgian, rather low of stature, in form heavy, with broad waist, short neck and limbs, good red and white complexion, features well chiselled and regular, well cut eyes of a clear brown colour, light brown hair, good teeth, age not much above fifteen, but as full grown as a stout young Englishwoman of twenty. This portrait gives the idea of a somewhat dumpy but good-looking damsel, does it not? Well, when I looked along the row of young heads, my eye generally stopped at this of Adèle's. Her gaze was ever waiting for mine, and it frequently succeeded in arresting it. She was an unnatural-looking being, so young, fresh, blooming, yet so gorgon-like. Suspicion, sullen ill-temper were on her forehead, vicious propensities in her eye, envy and panther-like deceit about her mouth. In general she sat very still, her massive shape looked as if it could not bend much, nor did her large head, so broad at the base, so narrow towards the top, seem made to turn readily on her short neck. She had but two varieties of expression, the prevalent one a forbidding, dissatisfied scowl, varied sometimes by a most pernicious and perfidious smile. She was shunned by her fellow-pupils, for bad as many of them were, few were as bad as she. Aurelia and Adèle were in the first division of the second class. The second division was headed by a pensionnaire named Juana Trista. This girl was of mixed Belgian and Spanish origin. Her Flemish mother was dead, her Catalonian father was a merchant residing in the Blank Isles, where Juana had been born, and whence she was sent to Europe to be educated. I wonder that any one, looking at that girl's head and countenance, would have received her under their roof. She had precisely the same shape of skull as Pope Alexander the Sixth. Her organs of benevolence, veneration, conscientiousness, adhesiveness, were singularly small. Those of self-esteem, firmness, destructiveness, combativeness, preposterously large. Her head sloped up in the penthouse shape, was contracted about the forehead and prominent behind. She had rather good, though large and marked, features. Her temperament was fibrous and bilious. Her complexion pale and dark, hair and eyes black, form angular and rigid, but proportionate. Age fifteen. Juana was not very thin, but she had a gaunt visage, and her regard was fierce and hungry. Narrow as was her brow, it presented space enough for the legible graving of two words, mutiny and hate. In some one of her other lineaments, I think the eye, cowardice had also its distinct cipher. Mademoiselle Trista thought fit to trouble my first lessons with a coarse, workday sort of turbulence. She made noises with her mouth like a horse. She ejected her saliva. She used brutal expressions. 
Behind and below her were seated a band of very vulgar, inferior-looking flamandes, including two or three examples of that deformity of person and the imbecility of intellect whose frequency in the low countries would seem to furnish proof that the climate is such as to induce degeneracy of the human mind and body. These, I soon found, were completely under her influence, and with their aid she got up and sustained a swinish tumult, which I was constrained at last to quell by ordering her and two of her tools to rise from their seats, and having kept them standing five minutes, turning them bodily out of the schoolroom, the accomplices into a large place adjoining the grande salle, the principal into a cabinet, of which I closed the door and pocketed the key. This judgment I executed in the presence of Mademoiselle Reuter, who looked much aghast at beholding so decided a proceeding, the most severe that had ever been ventured on in her establishment. Her look of affright I answered with one of composure, and finally with a smile, which perhaps flattered and certainly soothed her. Juana Trista remained in Europe long enough to repay, by malevolence and ingratitude, all who had ever done her a good turn, and she then went to join her father in the blank isles, exulting in the thought that she should there have slaves, whom, as she said, she could kick and strike at will. These three pictures are from the life. I possess others as marked and as little agreeable, but I will spare my reader the exhibition of them. Doubtless it will be thought that I ought now, by way of contrast, to show something charming, some gentle virgin head, circled with a halo, some sweet personification of innocence clasping the dove of peace to her bosom. No, I saw nothing of the sort, and therefore cannot portray it. The pupil in the school possessing the happiest disposition was a young girl from the country, Louise Pat. She was sufficiently benevolent and obliging, but not well taught nor well mannered. Moreover, the plague spot of dissimulation was in her also. Honour and principle were unknown to her. She had scarcely heard their names. The least exceptionable pupil was the poor little Sylvie I have mentioned once before. Sylvie was gentle in manners, intelligent in mind. She was even sincere, as far as her religion would permit her to be so. But her physical organization was defective. Weak health stunted her growth and chilled her spirits. And then, destined as she was for the cloister, her whole soul was warped to a conventual bias and in the tame, trained subjection of her manner one read that she had already prepared herself for her future course of life by giving up her independence of thought and action into the hands of some despotic confessor. She permitted herself no original opinion, no preference of companion or employment. In everything she was guided by another. With a pale, passive, automaton air, she went about all day long doing what she was bid, never what she liked, or what, from innate conviction, she thought it right to do. The poor little future religieuse had been early taught to make the dictates of her own reason and conscience quite subordinate to the will of her spiritual director. She was the model pupil of Mademoiselle Reuter's establishment, 
pale blighted image where life lingered feebly but whence the soul had been conjured by romish wizard craft a few english pupils there were in this school and these might be divided into two classes first the continental english the daughters chiefly of broken adventurers whom debt or dishonour had driven from their own country these poor girls had never known the advantages of settled homes decorous example or honest protestant education resident a few months now in one catholic school now in another as their parents wandered from land to land from france to germany from germany to belgium they had picked up some scanty instruction many bad habits losing every notion even of the first elements of religion and morals and acquiring an imbecile indifference to every sentiment that can elevate humanity. They were distinguishable by an habitual look of sullen dejection, the result of crushed self-respect and constant browbeating from their popish fellow-pupils, who hated them as English and scorned them as heretics. The second class were British English. Of these I did not encounter half a dozen during the whole time of my attendance at the seminary. Their characteristics were clean but careless dress, ill-arranged hair, compared with the tight and trim foreigners, erect carriage, flexible figures, white and taper hands, features more irregular but also more intellectual than those of the Belgians, grave and modest countenances, a general air of native propriety and decency. By this last circumstance alone I could at a glance distinguish the daughter of Albion and nursling of Protestantism from the foster-child of Rome, the protégé of Jesuistry. Proud, too, was the aspect of these British girls. At once envied and ridiculed by their continental associates, they warded off insult with austere civility, and met hate with mute disdain. They eschewed company-keeping, and in the midst of numbers seemed to dwell isolated. The teachers presiding over this mixed multitude were three in number, all French. Their names Mademoiselle Zephyrine, Pelagie, and Suzette. The two last were commonplace personages enough, their look was ordinary, their manner was ordinary, their temper was ordinary, their thoughts, feelings, and views were all ordinary. Were I to write a chapter on the subject, I could not elucidate it further. Zephyrine was somewhat more distinguished in appearance and deportment than Pelagie and Suzette, but in character genuine Parisian coquette, perfidious, mercenary, and dry-hearted. A fourth maîtresse I sometimes saw who seemed to come daily to teach needlework, or netting, or lace-mending, or some such flimsy art, but of her I never had more than a passing glimpse, as she sat in the carré, with her frames and some dozen of the elder pupils about her. Consequently I had no opportunity of studying her character, or even of observing her person much. The latter, I remarked, had a very English air for a maîtresse otherwise it was not striking. Of character, I should think, she possessed but little, as her pupils seemed constantly en revolte against her authority. She did not reside in the house. Her name, I think, was Mademoiselle Henri. 
Amidst this assemblage of all that was insignificant and defective, much that was vicious and repulsive, by that last epithet many would have described the two or three stiff, silent, decently behaved, ill-dressed British girls, the sensible, sagacious, affable directress shone like a steady star over a marsh full of jack-o'-lanterns. Profoundly aware of her superiority, she derived an inward bliss from that consciousness, which sustained her under all the care and responsibility inseparable from her position. It kept her temper calm, her brow smooth, her manner tranquil. She liked, as who would not, on entering the schoolroom, to feel that her sole presence sufficed to diffuse that order and quiet which all the remonstrances and even commands of her underlings frequently failed to enforce. She liked to stand in comparison, or rather contrast, with those who surrounded her, and to know that in personal as well as mental advantages she bore away the undisputed palm of preference. The three teachers were all plain. Her pupils she managed with such indulgence and address, taking always on herself the office of recompenser and eulogist, and abandoning to her subalterns every invidious task of blame and punishment, that they all regarded her with deference, if not with affection. Her teachers did not love her, but they submitted because they were her inferiors in everything. The various masters who attended her school were each and all in some way or other under her influence. Over one she had acquired power by her skilful management of his bad temper, over another by little attentions to his petty caprices. A third she had subdued by flattery, a fourth, a timid man, she kept in awe by a sort of austere decision of mien. Me she still watched still tried by the most ingenious tests. She roved round me, baffled, yet persevering. I believe she thought I was like a smooth and bare precipice, which offered neither jutting stone nor tree-root nor tuft of grass to aid the climber. Now she flattered with exquisite tact, now she moralised, now she tried how far I was accessible to mercenary motives. Then she disported on the brink of affection, knowing that some men are won by weakness. Anon she talked excellent sense, aware that others have the folly to admire judgment. I found it at once pleasant and easy to evade all these efforts. It was sweet, when she thought me nearly won, to turn round and to smile in her very eyes, half scornfully, and then to witness her scarcely veiled, though mute, mortification. Still she persevered, and at last, I am bound to confess it, her finger, essaying, proving every atom of the casket, touched its secret spring, and for a moment the lid sprung open. She laid her hand on the jewel within. Whether she stole and broke it, or whether the lid shut again with a snap on her fingers, read on, and you shall know. It happened that I came one day to give a lesson when I was indisposed. I had a bad cold and a cough. Two hours' incessant talking left me very hoarse and tired. As I quitted the schoolroom and was passing along the corridor, I met Mademoiselle Reuter. She remarked, with an anxious air, that I looked very pale and tired. Yes, I said, I was fatigued. And then, with increased interest, she rejoined, 
"'You shall not go away till you have had some refreshment.' "'She persuaded me to step into the parlour, "'and was very kind and gentle while I stayed. "'The next day she was kinder still. "'She came herself into the class to see that the windows were closed "'and that there was no draught. "'She exhorted me with friendly earnestness not to over-exert myself.' When I went away she gave me her hand unasked, and I could not but mark, by a respectful and gentle pressure, that I was sensible of the favour, and grateful for it. My modest demonstration kindled a little merry smile on her countenance. I thought her almost charming. During the remainder of the evening my mind was full of impatience for the afternoon of the next day to arrive, that I might see her again. I was not disappointed, for she sat in the class during the whole of my subsequent lesson, and often looked at me almost with affection. At four o'clock she accompanied me out of the schoolroom, asking with solicitude after my health, then scolding me sweetly because I spoke too loud and gave myself too much trouble. I stopped at the glass door which led into the garden, to hear her lecture to the end. The door was open, it was a very fine day and while I listened to the soothing reprimand, I looked at the sunshine and flowers, and felt very happy. The day-scholars began to pour from the schoolrooms into the passage. "'Will you go into the garden a minute or two? asked she, till they are gone.' I descended the steps without answering, but I looked back as much as to say, "'You will come with me.' In another minute I and the directress were walking side by side, down the alley bordered with fruit-trees, whose white blossoms were then in full blow as well as their tender green leaves. The sky was blue, the air still, the May afternoon was full of brightness and fragrance. Released from the stifling class, surrounded with flowers and foliage, with a pleasing, smiling, affable woman at my side, how did I feel? Why, very enviably. It seemed as if the romantic visions my imagination had suggested of this garden, while it was yet hidden from me by the jealous boards, were more than realised, and when a turn in the alley shut out the view of the house, and some tall shrubs excluded Monsieur Pelet's mansion, and screened us momentarily from the other houses rising amphitheatre-like round this green spot, I gave my arm to Mademoiselle Reuter, and led her to a garden chair nestled under some lilacs near. She sat down. I took my place at her side. She went on talking to me with that ease which communicates ease, and as I listened a revelation dawned in my mind that I was on the brink of falling in love. The dinner-bell rang, both at her house and Monsieur Pelet's. We were obliged to part. I detained her a moment as she was moving away. "'I want something,' said I. "'What?' asked Zoraide naively. "'Only a flower.' "'Gather it, then, or two, or twenty, if you like. "'No, one will do. "'But you must gather it and give it to me.' "'What a caprice!' she exclaimed, "'but she raised herself on her tiptoes, "'and plucking a beautiful branch of lilac, "'offered it to me with grace.' I took it and went away, satisfied for the present, and hopeful for the future. Certainly that May day was a lovely one, and it closed in a moonlight night of summer warmth and serenity. 
I remember this well, for having sat up late that evening correcting devoir, and feeling weary and a little oppressed with the closeness of my small room, I opened the often-mentioned boarded window, whose boards, however, I had persuaded old Madame Pelet to have removed, since I had filled the post of professor in the Pensionnat de Demoiselles, as from that time it was no longer inconvenient for me to overlook my own pupils at their sports. I sat down in the window-seat, rested my arm on the sill, and leaned out. Above me was the clear obscure of a cloudless night sky. Splendid moonlight subdued the tremulous sparkle of the stars. Below lay the garden, varied with silvery luster and deep shade, and all fresh with dew. A grateful perfume exhaled from the closed blossoms of the fruit-trees. Not a leaf stirred, the night was breezeless. My window looked directly down upon a certain walk of Mademoiselle Reuter's garden, called L'Allée Défendue, so named because the pupils were forbidden to enter it on account of its proximity to the boys' school. It was here that the lilacs and laburnums grew especially thick. This was the most sheltered nook in the enclosure. Its shrubs screened the garden chair where that afternoon I had sat with the young directress. I need not say that my thoughts were chiefly with her as I leaned from the lattice, and let my eye roam, now over the walks and borders of the garden, now along the many-windowed front of the house, which rose white beyond the masses of foliage. I wondered in what part of the building was situated her apartment, and a single light, shining through the persienne of one croisée, seemed to direct me to it. She watches late, thought I, for it must be now near midnight. She is a fascinating little woman, I continued in voiceless soliloquy. Her image forms a pleasant picture in memory. I know she is not what the world calls pretty. No matter, there is harmony in her aspect, and I like it. Her brown hair, her blue eye, the freshness of her cheek, the whiteness of her neck, all suit my taste. Then I respect her talent. The idea of marrying a doll or a fool was always abhorrent to me. I know that a pretty doll, a fair fool, might do well enough for the honeymoon, but when passion cooled, how dreadful to find a lump of wax and wood laid in my bosom, a half-idiot clasped in my arms, and to remember that I had made of this my equal, nay, my idol, to know that I must pass the rest of my dreary life with a creature incapable of understanding what I said, of appreciating what I thought, or of sympathising with what I felt. Now Zoraïde Reuter, thought I, has tact, caractère, judgment, discretion. Has she heart? What a good simple little smile played about her lips when she gave me the branch of lilacs. I have thought her crafty, dissembling, interested sometimes, it is true. But may not much that looks like cunning and dissimulation in her conduct be only the efforts made by a bland temper to traverse quietly perplexing difficulties? And as to interest, she wishes to make her way in the world, no doubt, and who can blame her? Even if she be truly deficient in sound principle, is it not rather her misfortune than her fault? She has been brought up a Catholic. 
Had she been born an Englishwoman and reared a Protestant, might she not have added straight integrity to all her other excellences? Supposing she were to marry an English and Protestant husband, would she not, rational, sensible as she is, quickly acknowledge the superiority of right over expediency, honesty over policy? It would be worth a man's while to try the experiment. Tomorrow I will renew my observations. She knows that I watch her. How calm she is under scrutiny. It seems rather to gratify than annoy her. Here a strain of music stole in upon my monologue and suspended it. It was a bugle, very skilfully played, in the neighbourhood of the park, I thought, or on the Place Royale. So sweet were the tones, so subduing their effect at that hour, in the midst of silence and under the quiet rain of moonlight, I ceased to think, that I might listen more intently. The strain retreated, its sound waxed fainter and was soon gone. My ear prepared to repose on the absolute hush of midnight once more. No! What murmur was that which, low and yet near and approaching nearer, frustrated the expectation of total silence? It was someone conversing. Yes, evidently an audible, though subdued, voice spoke in the garden immediately below me. Another answered. The first voice was that of a man, the second that of a woman. And a man and a woman I saw coming slowly down the alley. Their forms were at first in shade. I could but discern a dusk outline of each. But a ray of moonlight met them at the termination of the walk, when they were under my very nose, and revealed very plainly, very unequivocally, Mademoiselle Zoraide Reuter, arm in arm, or hand in hand, I forget which, with my principal, confidant and counsellor, Monsieur François Pelet. And Monsieur Pelet was saying, À quand donc le jour des noces, ma bien-aimée? And Mademoiselle Reuter answered, Mais, François, tu sais bien qu'il me serait impossible de me marier avant les vacances. June, July, August, a whole quarter, exclaimed the director. How can I wait so long? I who am ready even now to expire at your feet with impatience. Ah, if you die, the whole affair will be settled without any trouble about notaries and contracts. I shall only have to order a slight morning dress, which will be much sooner prepared than the nuptial trousseau. Cruel Zoraide, you laugh at the distress of one who loves you so devotedly as I do. My torment is your sport. You scruple not to stretch my soul on the rack of jealousy. For deny it as you will, I am certain you have cast encouraging glances on that schoolboy Krimsvort. He has presumed to fall in love, which he dared not have done unless you had given him room to hope. What do you say, François? Do you say Krimsvort is in love with me? Over head and ears. Has he told you so? No, but I see it in his face. He blushes whenever your name is mentioned. A little laugh of exulting coquetry announced Mademoiselle Reuter's gratification at this piece of intelligence, which was a lie, by the by. I had never been so far gone as that, after all. 
Monsieur Pelet proceeded to ask what she intended to do with me, intimating pretty plainly, and not very gallantly, that it was nonsense for her to think of taking such a blanc bec as a husband, since she must be at least ten years older than I. Was she then thirty-two? I should not have thought it. The director, however, still pressed her to give a definite answer. "'François,' said she, "'you are jealous.' And still she laughed. Then, as if suddenly recollecting that this coquetry was not consistent with the character for modest dignity she wished to establish, she proceeded in a demure voice. "'Truly, my dear François, I will not deny that this young Englishman may have made some attempt to ingratiate himself with me. But so far from giving him any encouragement, I have always treated him with as much reserve as it was possible to combine with civility.' affianced as i am to you i would give no man false hopes believe me dear friend still pelet uttered murmurs of distrust so i judged at least from her reply what folly how could i prefer an unknown foreigner to you and then not to flatter your vanity crimsworth could not bear comparison with you either physically or mentally he is not a handsome man at all some may call him gentlemanlike and intelligent-looking, but for my part. The rest of the sentence was lost in the distance, as the pair, rising from the chair in which they had been seated, moved away. I waited their return, but soon the opening and shutting of a door informed me that they had re-entered the house. I listened a little longer. All was perfectly still. I listened more than an hour. At last I heard M. Pelet come in and ascend to his chamber. Glancing once more towards the long front of the garden-house, I perceived that its solitary light was at length extinguished. So for a time was my faith in love and friendship. I went to bed, but something feverish and fiery had got into my veins, which prevented me from sleeping much that night. End of chapter 12 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey